0: This this, this this is K-U-T. you. K-U-T. K-U-T, Austin. Stop. I'm Jennifer Staten. On social media, cable TV, and even on your drive to work, it can seem like we're surrounded more and more by incivility. A new book by a pair of White House social secretaries is all about this. I spoke recently with Lee Berman and Jeremy Bernard about their book, Treating People Well, The Extraordinary Power of Civility at Work and in Life. Bernard was Social Secretary for President Barack Obama from 2011 to 2015. Berman was Social Secretary for President George W. Bush from 2004 to 2007.
1: Well, it's been several years. uh, And in fact, when we started actively working on the book, it was before the 2016 primaries. So we had no idea that the timing would be what it was.
2: Yeah, we, we would like to say how incredibly insightful we were to make the timing when it seems that we most need some civility, but it was, if it is indeed good timing, it was pure luck. So then
0: if this happened before, what people would say maybe a time when we have needed it more than ever in recent times, why did you all decide to write a book about civility in our lives and in our work lives?
2: The idea of us working on a book together first came, I think that the person that suggested it really was thinking we would do a book on entertaining. But there have been so many books on entertaining, and we felt like that really didn't focus what our jobs were about. And we discussed it, and after, it, it took a little while, but we decided this was what was so important, and things we kind of wanting to have the book we wish we had when we started the job. Or years ago.
1: Social secretaries interact with so many different kinds of people from so many different walks of life that you can't help but start to form techniques and devices to make everyone's interaction more pleasant. Because if you think about it, you never read about a social secretary in the newspaper unless something terrible has gone wrong. So we were very motivated to keep ourselves out of the paper. So what exactly does the White House Social Secretary do? Well, the Social Secretary is responsible for all of the events that take place within the White House grounds, with the exception of the Oval Office and the press room. So it's more than parties. It's press statements and Rose Garden events, uh, turkey pardonings, uh, picnics for the Congress, uh, congressional ball, um, virtually every diplomatic delegation that comes to meet with the president has some kind of meal at the white house so the social secretary is organizing hundreds of events every year with a very small staff and we're kind of like the beat cops of the white house and that nothing is beneath our
2: notice it could also be a the president doing a press conference where he decides he wants to do it on the state floor instead of the press room so everyone was surprised to hear when i would talk about the job they thought oh we always think of state dinners. And certainly that was one of our responsibilities, but it actually was not that often. And it was not, most days we saw the president, but we didn't, it wasn't for a state dinner, it was for a statement or something more minor.
0: What is it like to work in the White House?
1: Well, it's wonderful. It's very intimidating at first until you become accustomed to it. And Jeremy and I often joke that it was some kind of karmic joke that he and I ever were social secretaries at all. And in the first few days, it takes some adjustment, but you have to take a positive attitude and know that everyone is there to help and support you. And, you know, the resident staff of the White House doesn't change. Presidents come and go, but the staffs stay, and they have tremendous institutional knowledge and great discretion and loyalty. And a lot of what I learned about how to run the White House day-to-day came from them.
0: I'm curious to hear if you could each share a behind-the-scenes story from the White House about something related to your job, a time when, you know, you really had to to run in there and save the day or prevent a faux pas or something from happening. Share with us a war story about (laughs) doing that job.
2: It was always a little bit of a balancing act of knowing how many people would attend something that was a seated, like a a, a press conference or uh, could be team coming in that was a championship and making sure that we had enough seats but then if it turned out that some of the people didn't show up grabbing those open seats and taking them away because if there was a time where there was empty seats the first thing they would say on the news was you know people weren't there so we we were constantly trying to battle that and that that was always stressful. St. Patrick's
1: Day is a big deal at the White House there. We used to say that there's a lot of pressure on the guest list, which was a polite way of saying everybody wanted to come to that party. And um, there was this lovely elderly nun in the audience. And at the end of the ceremony, as President Bush was leaving the East Room and he was flanked by an honor guard of military social aides, the nun got so excited that she leaped forward, knocked the military aide to the floor to shake President Bush's hand. And I had to kind of hustle in there and help the aide up and dust off the aide and say, are you all right? And then take the nun aside and offer something to eat and drink because she was just beside herself with excitement.
2: St. Patrick's was also a challenge because it was one of the really heavy drinking crowds and they (laughs) made the most of it.
0: So what do you do with
1: a heavy drinking crowd in the White House?
2: You're very careful. Yes,
1: yeah, so you keep them away from the marble steps. You know, I've seen people teetering at the top of the marble steps from the grand floor down to the ground floor and seen a social aid come up behind and just grab a woman just before she pitched forward. And then Jeremy has some other less savory stories about keeping people who've been having too much to drink away from the Christmas trees. There,
2: there is a great recipe tradition of the White House eggnog, and it's really good. The problem with it, it's really strong and you don't notice it. There were so many people that would have it and they would think, oh, this is great. They'd have another, they'd have another, and then suddenly they would hit them. So uh, President Obama used to, when he would come downstairs and would start speaking to people, he'd say, be careful of the eggnog. It will hit you hard when you least expect it. And sure enough, someone would suddenly realize they had had too much to drink and not wanting to get sick near a friend or near, their immediate reaction was to go toward the Christmas tree. And so we used to call them vomit trees. And we'd every year it'd be hit by a certain number of vomit hits. So it was uh, that was always a challenge. So
0: when something like that happened, when you had an, an incident in the White House, somebody bumps into someone unexpectedly and accidentally, somebody gets sick, do you have to share that with the president and the first lady? Are you discreet no. about what you how did you
1: did you have to share all of those stories? I never wanted to bother them with anything unless it was something funny. And I knew it would amuse them after the fact when everything had been taken care of. And part of being a social secretary and I part of, I think, being successful in life in general is to be unflappable and to not react when something difficult happens. I mean, don't ask me why, but there was mostly a white rug sort of a floral pattern white rug in the state dining room. People would spill red wine multiple times in the course of a day, and we'd say, oh, well, just get the salt. I mean, you you can't allow yourself to show concern because then that would make people anxious and uncomfortable.
2: I think I was also very careful to not share too much that they didn't need to know. But things like the, the getting sick into a tree or, or different things that happened after the fact, sometimes it could be before another event as they're waiting, or it could be in a meeting with them before afterwards saying, oh, guess what happened? And they enjoyed it because it was a relief of what their day-to-day was. It was kind of funny. It was a good way to take yourself less seriously and also have a, a an interaction with them that was not about work.
0: The book you all have written together, Treating People Well, The Extraordinary Power of Civility at Work and in Life. I'm curious how you all are defining civility.
1: Well, I think um, civility is more than etiquette. Um, you know, our manners are a visible manifestation of our sensitivity to others. So, to me, manners are always going to be important, and how we shape ourselves on the outside with our manners helps shape who we become on the inside.
2: Yeah, I think that people would say to me, "Oh, is this a book on etiquette?" And it's not. It's not about rules. It's really about how you want to be treated, and thus how you treat others.
0: What are the main lessons about civility that each of you learned from your jobs from working in the White
1: House? I think one of the things that was most instructive to me was to see how not reacting to someone's anger or unhappiness can be very, very effective. If you wait a beat and you respond with some equanimity, you give them a chance to explain themselves. And if you refuse to respond in kind, it doesn't give them anywhere to go with their unhappiness. And, you know, we, we got a lot of complaints. People didn't like where they were seated or uh, they thought sh- they should be able to go upstairs and see the Lincoln bedroom or whatever the reason. We became very accustomed to hearing complaints. And so we got pretty good at deflecting and diffusing.
2: I think for me, it was exactly that is you deal with so many different egos and so many different personalities at the White House and most of them pretty strong whether it's other assistants to the president or it's someone in the the usher or whatever you have a lot of different uh personalities and sometimes ego and i really learned to step back and try not to take it personally and not react in the same form, and that didn't always happen at the beginning, and it took time, and I realized what worked and didn't work and i it 's one of those things I wish I had known ahead of time of how better to not to to think about it and not react without thinking and giving a pause.
0: Traffic in Austin is terrible, and when i 'm mm-hmm. stuck in traffic and someone cuts me off or whatever, and I just want to show a gesture to express my displeasure or otherwise honk. yell. Sometimes it seems frustrating because taking the high road and being civil, we're not met with that in return.
2: We're not, but I live in Los Angeles now, so obviously I deal with the traffic issue. I am now much more aware after working on this book, do I really need to honk at this person because they're kind of taking two lanes and it's gonna take an extra thirty seconds. What does it matter? Obviously if someone's in danger in your life or they feel like you feel like they're not being careful, it's different, but it really has made me think twice before I react because, but all it does is bring up your own blood pressure.
1: Right. And I think you have to have a sense of perspective about it. How many times have we left the house in the morning in a great mood? And after someone cuts you off, and someone else blocks the box, and someone else takes the parking space, by the time you get to work, you're in a horrible mood. And you just have to remind yourself that you're not going to give that kind of power to some completely thoughtless strangers, you know, and not let that bother you. It takes some effort, you know, but it's definitely worth it. You all have a section in the book about technology and social media. And i love to talk
0: about that for a minute, just because, you know, everywhere we go, people, their phones out, they're on their phones, they're sort of engaging with us, but they're also sort of looking at their phones. Talk about appropriate use of smartphones and technology. It seems like we shouldn't have to talk about it. But It seems like we have to talk about it.
1: You know, the technology is developing so quickly that we can't make up humane rules to go with it fast enough ourselves. Um, And I think the person in person trumps the person online. And, And I also think a very basic rule of thumb that relates more to how unpleasant and ugly it can be online sometimes is that if everything you post online is something that you would be comfortable saying to another person to their face you're probably going to be fine and it's worth caring about that because the internet is forever and the things that we post and the things that we write online may come back to haunt us when we're trying to get jobs or you know we're trying to build a relationship and someone looks back and sees what might have been in the past and you know people change but what's on the internet is there.
2: We get so wrapped up in responding and and the immediate response, immediate gratification. But when I'm most offended, I think is when I see someone like this in line in front of me, whether it be at a, the pharmacy or or a, a grocery store, and they're on their phone having a conversation while they're dealing with the cashier, and it's it's so rude because that's a human being in front of you, and it doesn't take much to just say, "Hey, I need to call you back." Because I'm I'm checking out of, you know, everyone would understand it, but people get so caught up that they sit there and they're in a conversation and they don't say thank you, please or anything because it's, they're all focused on what they're doing on the phone and not the person in front of them.
0: One thing that I can't help but notice about how we live our lives online and those social media messages, it seems like we're moving into a time and place, at least people who use those a lot, where we take pleasure and feel better at the demise or mistake or downfall of others. And that seems
1: like a real blow to civility. that That just seems where that discourse has evolved, which is unfortunate. It's a real disconnect. And I think we have to remember that the internet and social media, as fabulous as as it is, and as much as it helps our lives, is just a tool. And without the humane application, of human standards to that, it can become a negative force.
2: And the internet and and technology does not give someone the license to be rude. And I think people forget that.
0: How do you feel uh, the future of civility looks? Are you worried at all about where we're headed? Or, you know, if we were to gather again in 20 or 30 years, and who knows where the technology will have gone by then, and what rules of the road we
1: have, where do you see us heading with, with all of this. Well, I'd like to think that the reaction to what we see in the public arena should be one of passive resistance and a rejection of this kind of behavior. And that's why I think the book is timely right now for reasons other than the political ones. I mean, everywhere you look, someone has something extreme to say. And I'd really prefer to not live my life that way. And I think as individuals, we each have the power to make that change and live our lives differently and not buy into that culture.
2: I get concerned sometimes, but I try to be optimistic and realize how much just in our uh, going around and talking about the book, how many people say, Oh, I'm so glad you wrote this, or this is what we need now. I think people are hungry for more civility and it, it, because this, this constant, uh, what I call reality TV behavior, because in reality TV, the worse you behave, the more attention you get. I think people find that exhausting in life. And I'm, I, getting the sense that people are getting exhausted with some of the bad behavior.
0: So I want to read a couple of sentences from the book, one from the introduction and two from within the book. Insisting on your own importance rarely works. Bluster is usually unconvincing. The most effective leaders emanate self-assurance, not self-importance. Those are all sentences right from the book. And I was reading that and thinking that does not describe our current president. You know, if we're hoping for civility and civil discourse, wouldn't that start at the top? I mean, you all both work for presidents who did not conduct themselves publicly the way our current president does.
2: It would be nice, and certainly the tradition has been that the person in the executive branch behave a certain way, but we can't just act in a a vacuum and just give up because someone isn't—there are a lot of people in D.C. behaving badly— And what we've got to do is just demand more civility.
1: I agree. Um, I think when you hold people to a higher standard, and that requires us to pay attention to the news, not just the news that we agree with, but all the news that's out there so that we can form our own decisions. You know, to be a good citizen now, you really have to be a good listener. And uh, if you're able to discern what the truth is, and that takes some effort these days, then you have the right to hold people to a higher standard. Jeremy
0: Bernard was White House Social Secretary and Special Assistant to President Barack Obama from 2011 to 2015. Lee Berman was White House Social Secretary and Special Assistant to President George W. Bush from 2004 to 2007. The book is Treating People Well, The Extraordinary Power of Civility at Work and in Life. Thank you both so much for coming in today and for our conversation. It's a pleasure.
1: Thank you.